Welcome to the Nonfiction Podcast. I'm Matt Puzateri. This week, we're taking a look at Crowdsource, written by Davy Rothbart for the California Sunday Magazine in March of 2016. Davy Rothbart is one of those people who's just good at a lot of things. He's written books, he's a filmmaker, he's been featured several times on This American Life, he's the founder and editor of Found Magazine. And when I talked with Davey, it was clear that he brings a lot of energy and enthusiasm to his work. So it's a real pleasure to have Davey on the podcast. His story, Crowdsource, looks at a company that provides crowds to clients. For a fee, they can either deliver a mob of cheering fans or a noisy crowd of angry protesters. It doesn't really matter as long as the client is willing to pay. And here is a brief excerpt from that story. Lloyd's friends, Michelle and Cecilia, are cast as autograph hounds. Six or seven photographers have been hired to act as Pavarazzi, actual freelance photographers, some of whom hadn't realized they'd been hired only to take fake pictures. A hulking guy in a dark suit and sunglasses named Dion Mason is assigned to play the life coach's bodyguard, escorting them past all of us, from the door of the ballroom to the registration table. Dion is one of Crowds on Demand's rising stars, known for his prowess not only as a fake bodyguard, but also as an opinionated fashionista at art openings. My job? Adam appraises me thoughtfully. Tell you what, he says. You'll be the selfie guy. Whatever it takes to get a selfie, make it happen. Get rabid. Adam and Dell give us a couple of hurried run-throughs to practice. And then within a couple minutes, the life coaches begin to trickle in. Instantly, the room turns into a mad scrum. As each life coach slips into the room, Lloyd erupts, squealing. Michelle and Cecilia beg for autographs. The paparazzi stalk the rope line, flashbulbs popping, as Dion and a second bodyguard try to keep us all at bay. To be successful in getting a selfie with each life coach means becoming completely unhinged. I have to reach out over the rope, cry out each person's name, and fend off Dion while desperately pleading for a quick pick. I'm so happy you're here. Come on, just one little picture, please. As these folks arrive in the ballroom to register and pick up gift bags, our job is to treat them like mega-celebrities. So, if you haven't already read this story, no problem. The link to this article is in the show notes and on the podcast website at nonfictionpodcast.com. Go ahead, pause the show, and come back after you've read it. Otherwise, as always, fair warning, there's going to be spoilers about the story. So if you don't want that spoiled, read the story first. And so, without further delay, here's my interview with Davey Rothbart. I'm talking with Davey Rothbart, a best-selling author, Emmy Award-winning filmmaker, contributed to This American Life, and the editor-publisher of Found Magazine. He also wrote Crowdsource, which ran in the California Sunday Magazine on March 31st of this year. Davey, thanks for coming on the show. Thanks for having me, Matt. So... Tell me first how this story came to be. How did you wind up writing this story? Sure. Well, I had been a fan of California Sunday Magazine ever since it started. Um, Doug McGray is like a longtime acquaintance of mine. He's the editor-in-chief. And, you know, California Sunday, the idea behind it was to kind of be like a, I don't know if they would put it this way, but I, I've always seen it as kind of like a West Coast New York Times magazine. Uh, it looks beautiful. There's great journalism. And um, it's just put together by sort you know smart and interesting people. So um, actually, Kit Rockless is the ed- is the managing editor, and um, he and Doug reached out to me because they actually had come across this service. I had never heard of it, Crowds on Demand, 
And, um, you know, I do a lot of kind of first person participatory journalism and I enjoy it. And so they really had not had anything like that in California Sunday magazine previous, previously, but they were like, we want to try something like this and we think you'd be a good person to give it a whirl. Do you want to try, you know, they asked me like, do you want to try working for this company and see what the hell it's all about? And I said, yeah, let's do it. <laughs> <laughs> so did, did you just solicit them cold saying, are you responding to one of their ads or how did you actually get inside? It wasn't quite as much subterfuge as you might expect. But um, first I, you know, my my first thought was like, if I can just apply to this company and get a job there, then, you know, like it would be as undercover as possible. And um, I I did, I went on their website. There's a form you can fill out to try to apply for a job. Separately, I emailed Adam Swart, who's the CEO of Crowds on Demand, and also Del Brown, who's like kind of the manager of the company. And I just said how badly I wanted to work there and hire me and um I didn't hear back anything and apparently they're they get dozens of these emails and and you know people filling out their web form a day so later I learned that Adam said if somebody has a distinctive talent they they might stand out to him a little bit more for example he employs one guy who's like six foot six and always wears a kilt and like <laughs> leather and black leather jackets and that guy has just come in to be hand you know Adam says he never likes to tell clients it, it, and just to explain is, I mean, you may have talked about this already, but um, the the company hires people to act as crowds, whether it's for protests or to pretend to be paparazzi on someone's birthday, you know, or or political campaign events. And so Adam said he never likes to tell a potential client, oh, I can't help you with that. So he likes to have as diverse a range of employees, you know, at his disposal. So he wants to have a six foot six guy in a kilt in case anybody ever asked for one, you know? <laughs> right. But I didn't right. stand out enough as a regular applicant right. to really deserve a return phone call. So at that point, you know, I, I had a limited like kind of window to try to do some stuff because actually California Sunday is also responsible for a great program called pop-up magazine, which is an incredible kind of live show it's like the New Yorker meets the moth. Basically, it's, it just happens one night. They, they, they tour it around to different cities around the country, but it's one night. It's not filmed. It's just like a, a live magazine kind of hap- unfolding on stage. And so there was an upcoming pop-up magazine tour, and, and their idea was for me to do a piece about Crowds on Demand for that and then later write a longer piece for California Sunday. So there was kind of an urgency to – to connect with crowds on demand and get a job there. So at that point I just reached out to, I like, you know, sent a follow-up email or maybe called and left a message at crowds on demand and just explained I was a journalist. I wanted to write a piece about it. Now California Sunday is a newer magazine and crowds on demand, you know, they've been covered by, you know, big TV shows and stuff like that. So they, um, I don't think he knew exactly who I was, what I wanted to do or anything. So he was vaguely aware I was a journalist. This is Adam Swart, who's the that runs the company. But he he said, "Hey, look, we're doing. I mean, they do dozens of events a week. So he said, we've got this event coming up next Monday or Tuesday at at uh, at the LAX airport at like the Marriott Hotel there. So um, <laughs> he said, just show up 11 a.m. and we'll explain what's going to happen. So 
I really did show up at the, my first event working for him, his company, having no idea what I was about to do. Right. Uh, just here I am. Uh, put, put us to work. And, and, and there was about 20 other people. I don't think any of us knew what, what was coming. <laughs> One thing I love is that that sort of leads to the opening scene of the piece, which I thought was really great because you don't really – you spend a little bit of a time explaining what Crowds on Demand does, but you really more than that show it by what you're asked to do. Yeah. Uh, what I think is great about it is that it's, it's a very funny story. And one of the things I, I loved about it was there's a lot of humor in it and it, there's a lot of absurdity to what these guys are doing. But it also raises some real questions in an era where a lot of us rely on, you know, quote unquote, the wisdom of the crowd, right? Like things like Yelp. Yep. You know, it started me wondering, like, you know, do we need to increasingly be suspicious of fake virtual crowds or real life crowds? And what does this mean for activism and protests? It, it's, it's interesting territory. I mean, when, you know, I, I still think out of every thousand crowds, you know, there's probably only one is faked. But that said, there it is definitely, I mean, the success of Adam's company, Crowds on Demand, like, proves that there's a, a, a need for it, or a, at least a desire for it. There's, you know, there's customers, there's people willing to pay money, sometimes a lot of money, to have people show up and do what, you know, do their bidding. <laughs> so... And, and so I feel like it's going to only grow and Adam will probably have some new competitors entering the field. You know, he's certainly staked out territory as like the the foremost leader. And if Adam is Uber, who, who's going to be the lift of, of hired crowds? You know? And, <laughs> right. and, and uh, yeah, I, I think it will take a while before there's a point where we really start questioning the veracity of these crowds. But that said, like, this is something that, politicians have been doing for years you know there's maybe not formally through a company like adams crowds on demand company but you know they just through their own they've had a team an internal team you know to drum up crowds for campaign events and and probably paid people you know and so that's that's sort of like par for the course i think that was one of the interesting things about the piece is that you you know to some degree this is a very new thing but as you point out in the story you know, this has been going on for a long time, and there's actually a section in the piece about the history of hired crowds. Yeah, yeah, because hundreds of years ago, um, theaters, playwrights, and theaters in in England and France, you know, they they would have specially hired crowds, crowd members who who each of them had their own special function. You know, some of them would laugh more than everybody else. Some would cheer more, or, or just ask for an encore. Um, Someone just whisper excitedly about how much they're enjoying the show to friends between acts, and this is in like the 17 and 1800s. So, so it's not a it's not a new invention, but it's kind of um, crowds on demand is kind of finding new ways to utilize crowds, and and frankly, people in general, you know, customers and clients are are being inventive and thinking about. Well, how how would I use a crowd? You know, if I had twenty people that could do whatever I wanted to, you know, how how could I use that? Um, whether for PR purposes or um, something more unusual. Right, right. Um, speaking of that section, you know, you, where you go into the history, I imagine you you dug a lot into these records and histories and things. How did you know when you had enough of that background material to fill that in, or did you have a lot more than you were able to really use? Yeah. Uh, well, you know, for me the most like the the first thing the part of like for me my storytelling instincts are just to tell about my own experiences that i had while kind of 
being going on some adventures and working for this company. Right. Um, I think just later, as as I talked about it with Kit and Doug, my editors at, at California Sunday, um, we just thought, you know, let's just let's, let's at least give a nod of our heads toward the history of this. And you know, it's interesting that that this is not a new phenomenon. This has been going on for hundreds of years. But um, but I think I think our intention was never, and and my strength as a writer is not really around necessarily, you know grand historical research you know the, the piece the piece lives is and, and is at its most lively when i'm when you're with me on the job at one of these crowd crowd events but um so i would say i didn't do a lot of research and and all, my the sum of my research is probably in those two or three paragraphs and how do you balance that i mean i think part of what makes this story very lively is exactly what you said is it's very personal in a lot of ways and it's you recounting the kind of surreal strange experience of being in one of these hired crowds for a couple different events. Um, how did you balance that with the broader kind of explaining what this is all about? Was that difficult to do or? Yeah. Yeah. Um, it's, it, it's a good question. I, I feel like, well, you know, I worked for years at this American life and, um, I think a lot of my magazine writing and like, is kind of still shaped by the storytelling um, style, I guess, of This American Life. So This American Life pieces um, are all about, you know, events happening and then kind of reflecting on the event and thinking on a grander level, like, what do, what does that mean? Mm -hmm. um, and so I try to just fold it in into the actual events. You know, as, I'm, as you see me there um, in the moment, whether I'm working as like a paparazzi for these life coaches at the LAX Marriott or whether you see me as part of like a, a staged, a kind of complex staged protest in San Francisco right. against the Masons where we were pretending to be media crews. Um, but I think, you know, these, I'm kind of describing the events unfolding and then I'm kind of just trying to tuck in here and there, like some, a little bit of grander reflections um, and without getting too over the top, you know, or, or saying like, this is what it all means. But just being like, I wondered if this is what it could mean, you know? Right, right, right. And, um, and so, yeah, I mean, I feel like the more you can fold it into the action, the better, rather than having just a completely separate section that's like, um, you know, that, that's the, that, that explains it all. You know, you mentioned in the, in the piece that part of the success of this company is that people don't really know that they exist to some degree, right? That people don't always know that these crowds are hired. True, right? totally. So I mean, were they... I mean, were they were they reluctant to talk to you, or was there a sense of they weren't really wanting to let you share this, or were they kind of open to publicize themselves? A very interesting combination. Um, I think that the company, yes, they they have some secretive measures because like they don't really know me, they don't know what my angle is, and they don't, you know, am I trying to unmask them, or you know, is is it this like? investigation like 60 minute style into you know like I, I, I don't know they, they they protect some of their methods I guess e even to the point where like at the first event I went to I noticed that Adam who runs the company he didn't really want me talking to any of the other hired crowd members and so one thing I did I mean I, I was just thinking about this before our talk and like I don't know any strategies or techniques you know like just kind of on the sly when Adam wasn't watching, I a couple a couple of the people I like I was like, hey, could I 
I, I kind of revealed myself to be a journalist to them because all the other people I was working with, they really worked for this company, Crowds on Demand, and they didn't know that that I was a journalist. He didn't hadn't like explained it to everybody beforehand or anything. So I pulled them aside and just asked if I could get their contact information. The other thing I did is that there was a there was a sign up sheet that went around. There was kind of like an attendance sheet, so he could pay people later for having been there. And so I just sort of surreptitiously took a photo with my <laughs> cell phone of that right. sign up sheet. That allowed me to follow up later, yeah. you know, with with everybody else that was there, all the other people that were working, because I don't want to. I'm not trying to be, go behind the back of. Well, actually, that's exactly what I'm trying to do. Is, uh, <laughs> right. I don't want to wait for the permission right. of the person. You know, I'm I'm not promoting this company. I'm, and I'm not. I do need them to cooperate and keep inviting me to participate in events so I understand better what the events are, what happens at the events. But at the same time, just because they don't want me to talk to other employees doesn't mean I should follow their rules about it. So right. I was able to take that picture and then have, I had all the emails of all the people I worked with. So the people who I, had, who I chatted with a little bit during the thing, I was able to follow up with later and, and get a little more insight from them right. about their experiences. And so after we did the pop-up magazine event um, where I did do a short piece about Crowds on Demand and, and it was really centered around that first experience I had at the LAX Marriott with the life coaches. <laughs> and so once we did that, um, Adam actually, you know, he's 24, uh, the CEO of this company. He brought his parents to the event we did in San Francisco at the Opera House there. And, and, he, and he really loved it and he understood kind of the, the tone I was taking. And, and after that, he was way more open and accessible and, and, and really helped me. You know, it, it, it is a tricky thing sometimes. You have to rely on the help from the people that you're writing about to gain the kind of access you want. And yet you have to also ask tough questions and be, still be a journalist, not a advertiser, you know? Right. Right. So, so I remember like one of the people I'd worked with had been a little disgruntled about the way she was, the way the job had been presented to her and right. she wasn't really clear. She felt the company wasn't transparent when they were hiring people. They made it sound like one thing, you know, a film shoot or something. And really it was this crowds event. And so I, I, I challenged him about some of those things, but, you know, in a kind way. And he gave me pretty reasonable responses. And, in fact, that's what he, he talked a lot about was this this mix of wanting people to know about the company, but also not wanting them to know too much about the company. Right. <laughs> because, because, you know, it is a company where if people are aware that companies like this are operating, it, it might make them a little more skeptical in some situations where it really pays for them to have no skepticism at all. So uh, you, you went to a couple of these events and you talked to these people and you talked to Adam. Uh, mm -hmm. At some point, how did you know when you had enough stuff to, to really write the piece? Well, oh, actually, it's funny you say that because, you know, after I had just done that one event at the, at the LAX Marriott Hotel, um, as, you know, I, I was one of the hired crowd members and I thought, I kind of thought that would be the piece. And then... I talked to Kit and Doug, the editors, a little bit more, and and they were like, "Let's let's do more, you know. Let's let's because because the company does so many different kinds of events. It did seem like it made sense to try to do more. So I I kind of asked Adam what some upcoming events were that, that I could participate in, and and he was a little limited because he could only invite me to participate in, you know, he, he would ask some of his clients like. 
I've got this journalist who's writing about the company, you know, could he come and participate in your event? And most of them were like, hell no. Right. You know? <laughs> right. Right. Because they 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 were very secretive about the fact that they had hired this company and they didn't want anyone to find out. Even though, you know, we promised, oh, if it's say it's a film screening and you want to fill seats, you know, like I promise not to reveal the name of the film, stuff stuff like that. But the clients were kind of understandably hesitant to invite me along. So so Adam had to kind of be a little selective too in in finding events that that where the clients would be all right with me participating. And and again, you know, if I had been able to get hired as just a, a regular crowd member, then maybe we wouldn't have been limited. It would have been a little more deep undercover and, and wouldn't have been limited to ones where the, where the clients were in on it or at least knew I was going to be there. But that said, you know, there was a few options and, and uh, this protest in San Francisco sounded pretty interesting. So it, we wanted something that was different, pretty different from the first one. Right. I, I felt like that was interesting because that kind of bookended the story. The beginning one is almost completely trivial. It was mostly a, an uh-huh. event just to boost yeah. someone's ego, right? Or to create yeah, exactly. And then the second one, you know, it leaves it, and we could talk a little more about the ending shortly, but it struck me as it, it gave me a much more ambivalent take on this thing. Like on one hand, I realized this could be really used for some bad things. I mean, it could be used to really mislead people. And you give an example in the piece of where someone used it for potentially kind of shady reasons. Yeah, I mean, I think the for me, the, that's the murkiest one is the, the one where, a guy was being expelled by his college and they give you a hearing where you can have people kind of vouch for you and tell, tell your story, you know, say what a stand up guy you are. So he hired 20 of Adam's crowd members um, to kind of pretend to be his neighbors and friends and mentors. And, and, and each one of them gave these completely false testimonies that the guy himself had written. And so, you know, it's hard to know why was he being expelled? You know, like, was it, you know, but still, no matter what, it's, it's, it's sort of perverts the college justice system, which we know those can be flawed anyways. But so, but so there's certainly a lot of ethical gray area or like, it's all pretty gray. Yeah. And I think that like that example was definitely in, in my judgment, as I'm listening to this or reading it, that seems to be crossing a line. But then the, the, at the end, you have them at a protest that it, it's kind of mixed as to what it's, what it's leading to, but it also feels like, well, maybe this did work in a way. This may have forced some people to take a stand on an issue that otherwise, had they not been shamed by this fake crowd, they would have just ignored the issue altogether. Totally. And I think, you know, we could talk more about that specific event a little bit, but that was kind of my overall takeaway from from all the stories I heard and, and kind of learned about that this company, you know, one one little bit that didn't make it into the final piece because by the way my my initial draft was i think 8700 words and it came down to something like maybe 4500 adam says and i it makes sense to me you know that like a lot of times people may have an ethical case or a moral case but not a legal case so a lot of his protests are people who are just kind of stuck like they've somebody has wronged them seriously, you know, screwed them over. But for whatever reason, they can't actually sue that person. Um, it would either just be prohibitively expensive is one part of it. Or, you know, so I mean, Crowds on Demand, Adam's company does in many ways, like stand up for the little guy and, and people who you would, if you just heard the facts, you'd be like, yeah, that person deserves, you know, like for this wrong to be righted. And by hiring 20 people to go protest outside of a car dealership or a restaurant or a law firm, 
you sometimes for a week, you know, you sometimes can make that change happen. I overall, my overall feeling is like this guy, Adam, I just, I really liked him. He's a great guy. I, I talked to a lot of people who have participated in his events over, over the years. And I just feel like they, a lot, most of the work they do is like stuff you would, you know, like think is like pretty cool. And like, and like probably couldn't have been made right through other means. It's hard to think about how these people could have stood up for themselves without help from a company like this. Um, I think the event in San Francisco we did is a pretty good example of that. You know, we, the, the Masons, it's kind of a strange society that we don't really know much about anyways, but they had banned homosexuals from their membership in Georgia, in the state of Georgia. And one thing about the Masons is that they're, each chapter is very independent from the others. So they really don't try to interfere with each other's business. That's like one of their sort of fundamental tenets. But still, it's kind of messed up, you know, like it's very messed up if that one chapter is just banning gays like that's. And so the people who had hired Adam's company, they said like, oh, you know, these Masons were coming from all over the world to. I don't know if I'm giving away too much from the from the article itself. No, no, it's a, I have a spoiler alert at the start of every show, so people okay, are warned that, that we're going to talk about the whole story, so they should read great. it first, yeah. Great, great. Well, you know, Masons came from all over the world. They had this annual get-together, and the people who hired hired us, who hired Adam's company to protest, they said, you know, like, we don't want people just ignoring this Georgia chapter. I mean, this is and, – and not only that, but in other places in the world – Mason chapters had it it had been accused there had been allegations of anti black anti jewish anti female discrimination and and they they were like you know let's basically they said let's ruin these people's vacations <laughs> let's let them know that there's that there's people out there who care about this and I don't think that mainstream media would have really covered this it is kind of a niche organization and there's a lot of discrimination in kind of bigger companies and elsewhere that might be more likely to get press there. But Adam's kind of canny idea was to, rather than just have us pretend to be protesters, was was to have us pretend to be news media. And it would be an easier way. You know, it's, He said it's easier for people to ignore protesters, but it's harder for them to ignore reporters. So we, we stood out there. And again, I show up, I have no idea what I'm about to do. <laughs> Within like seven minutes of arriving, I have a microphone in my hand, like a six-person like uh, video crew of people with cameras and like floodlights and and sound boom, you know boom mics and stuff. And I'm just accosting these masons you know, as who have come in from all over the world as they get out of their taxis and are heading into this grand masonic temple. And um, and I'm just kind of like asking them questions about this Georgia chapter's edict against gays and and. Some people agreed with us, but said there's nothing they could do. Some people just bristled and bustled past us. People were physical with us a little bit sometimes, but we were unignorable. And it did change the conversation that night. And I and actually led to some changes. Actually, since I finished my article, and this is like unheard of because they're they're so they're so hands off uh, chapters with each other. This is like from what I understand, it's pretty unprecedented. But both the California and the D.C. chapter and maybe others all kind of issued this like official statement chastising the Georgia chapter and condemning them for, for having this anti-gay rules. And so 
I mean, I can't say specifically that it came out of this one protest that that Crowds on Demand set up, but it certainly accelerated that conversation. Is it? Tell me a little bit about your writing process. Do you kind of write in scenes? Do you write in sort of linear from your experience? How do you pull this all together once you had all your notes yeah. and experience? Well, the first step for me is always to take all this. I, I recorded a ton of tape um, just with a little handheld recorder. So even during both of my protests, or I mean, sorry, both of my crowds on demand gigs, like I just had my recorder going. And so I went back and listened to those and just kind of transcribed the key moments. Um, I had several conversations with Adam and some other people at, at his company and, and I, other employees and stuff. So I just transcribed everything because that kind of re- refreshes my mind. Because also, like my first event was in September or October, I think, uh, and then my and then there was another one in December, November or December. I mean, it was all spread out over like three or four months, probably. And I, I think I was writing this in like February. So five months had passed since my first stuff. It, it, it helps refresh you, but also then I just kind of bold. I put in bold like some of the, my favorite passages, and then I just I just wrote out those experiences as I kind of recalled them and what stood out for me. But I kind of kept glancing back at like the bolded passages just to see, you know, are there ideas or points? And and some of it came just through emails I traded with Kit, my editor. Like I think it's useful to just, or and some conversations I had with him. We had, we had some talks where we just talked about, well, what, what is this company all about? What, what's interesting about it? What, what can be said here? And whether it's just writing notes to yourself or trading emails with an, or, or conversations with an editor, I mean, I think, it's it's helpful to just send an email like you would to a friend. Yeah, even if you're sending it to yourself, just saying like, "Here's what here's what I experienced, and here's what stood out for me. Here's what you know. Isn't this crazy? Just like you would tell somebody if you went and did something. Right. Isn't this crazy? Isn't and then check out this. So uh, you know, it kind of helps you highlight in your own mind what the key moments and and details are. Anyways, then with all that, just kind of. Over two or three days, I guess, just kind of grind out a, a first draft and and go from there. And and how was it you decided, figured out what to, to cut out and trim away to get it down to the length it needed to be? Well, this is uh, my own process, and um, and maybe it's and I think it's probably different for many or most other writers. But like I, when I write a first draft, I try to just make it a great, great piece, and I'm really like passionate about it. After that, I like having an editor just chop and and screw it and and uh, just turn turn it into their own thing. You know, I know some writers are way more like involved in the edit, I guess. And I would say for this piece, I was more involved than I usually am. But still, I was basically like I knew it had to be ha- be half the length. But I felt like I'd done my part. Like I told the story I wanted to tell. I mean, Kit Rockless, by the way, he's like a like legend of an editor. You know, he he ran um, L.A. Magazine for and and the L.A. Times for like twenty years. You know, he's like you know he's a guy who you have a lot of faith in. So I was like, turn this into whatever you whatever you would like. And so he he really chopped it down. After that, he had certain questions, and he wanted me to go back and and I think that's when we talked more about the history of it, and I did some research into that. And there was quite a bit of back and forth in the for over the course of like six weeks, you know. And and um, I did add in stuff, and and even down to the individual words and commas at the end. Kit was very like 
collaborative and I, he, he wasn't as willing as most many editors for magazines i turn in a first draft i'm like just have at it and i'll see it in print you know <laughs> right and, and and kit demanded a little more back and forth but that's cool because i do feel more connected to the final piece Did, was there was there anything that got cut out of that final piece that you felt oh that was like one of my darlings that i had you know that i hated to see go yeah there was there was a couple bits and we were able to reinsert them into the piece. Just a detail that um, one of the women that I worked with, she was a crowds on demand employee at the LAX event. She had mentioned that the reason she was working this job was because she wanted to buy like Foo Fighters concert tickets and a t-shirt for her daughter. Right. And I just thought it was a great detail. It just helped express who are the people that are working for this company and what are their motivations, you know? And so, yes, it's not really an essential detail, but I just thought it might be nice to include that. So we we put that back in. There was a line I had about um about this company being kind of like a Charlie Kaufman movie. And 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 at some point that had gotten taken out, but that I asked for that one to be put back in. So there were there were some little things like that. And 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 then there were yeah, there were also long passages that I really liked that got lost along the way. Um I I, I also have a piece coming out in a couple of weeks for GQ about climbing Mount Kilimanjaro with a veteran, a Marine who lost his legs in Afghanistan. And again, that was one that I wrote like 9,000. It got cut down to like four or 5,000. And I almost feel like in that piece, there was more that I lost that I felt sad about losing. Whereas I feel like in the in this piece, what, what got lost was me like blathering. Right, <laughs> <laughs> right. So, and then I think about it, like, you know, like my original piece, it had like three endings kind of, and a couple were kind of tacked on one over the other. And then, we just realized we could cut it shorter. I mean, all, I would say all the cuts made sense. There was more interaction with some of the people at the protest in San Francisco, but like, you know, we basically picked our favorites out of, you know, you don't need it all. For me personally, I don't know why, but it makes me feel good to have a really, really long first draft that then I at least feel like I was able to communicate. the. I was able to get the experience down on paper. And that is a certain feeling of satisfaction for me. Even if no one else will ever read it, except maybe my mom, who I sent some of the art, my article, my like drafts of articles to. But at least like I got it down. And then if it gets cut and everything and in print, it's it's shorter, and some of those p- stories are lost. That that's okay for me. So so tell, so this this story came out a few weeks ago. What what kind of reactions did you get after it was yeah. published? But yeah, the reaction was awesome. Um, I got. I mean, there was a lot of activity on Twitter and long form great website and you know who highlights a lot of my favorite long form journalism and journalists they were promoting it as like one of their top picks of the week I know the Washington Post and Politico were all like talking about it and so it was just I mean I, I just when you write something you want people to read it so it was exciting for to see it get out there quite a bit it's it's funny because even though it is kind of a personal experience like that I went through it's less personal than a lot of the articles I write. <laughs> right. So the response was more centered, and this is fine and interesting and almost preferable in a way. Often the the response is sort of about me and like how weird or messed up I am, or like people kind of judging me, I guess. Right. <laughs> which I have, which is int- which is still also kind of fun and interesting sometimes. But I liked that the response here was really more about the company crowds on demand and people's very polarized response to the existence of a company like this. So it was fascinating to read some of some of the responses that and you know, and I got nice emails and all that kind of stuff. And 
that I, I got a nice note from it's this is good for any editors listening like I got a nice handwritten note with a copy from Doug McGray the editor-in-chief of California Sunday with um Kit my my the managing editor the guy I worked with on the piece I knew he was liked it and was happy with it and we had a great rapport but you know to hear from Doug personally you know that that he loved the piece and I don't I didn't need that encouragement to like keep going as a writer but it was it's just a classy touch and it it, it increases your loyalty to it this is my first time writing for this magazine it makes me want to you know it's like you feel appreciated and that, that's good for any executive in any kind of business so it was it was, that was nice and it, it's it's fun to have your it's fun to have your stories come out in the world um because california sunday also has such a beautiful website so the presentation of the piece online you know in the, the magazine is amazing looking if no one has read california sunday they, they got to see a print issue it's just won uh, you know all these national magazine awards for their visual layout and everything. The illustrations were one of my favorite things about the piece, and I'm wondering, yep. did you was that just a surprise to you when the the piece came out, or were you? No, I, I was. I didn't see it till like I saw a PDF like a week or two before it came out. But like, yeah, they had three different illustrators all do really interesting, similar but distinct takes on on this sort of crowds hired crowds phenomenon, and I thought they were amazing and like did add to it and 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 I was just so puzzled going in I was like what how are they going to possibly you know the, you could have taken up you know a nice portrait of Adam the, the CEO of the company you could have I, I had taken some pictures at my LAX event um uh, as we were doing it you know that was the stuff that was in my pop-up magazine piece I just didn't know what the, what the art was going to look like and they did a great job and I guess my last question this is an election year like you almost can't watch the news or see anything without crowds in it. Does, yes. does writing this piece make you, you know, more cynical, less cynical? Does it just? How do you I, react now every time you see an actual crowd? It's fascinating. I always all of these campaign events are so stage managed. And Trump's first his the first event when he announced he was running for president and he like came down that escalator. I don't know. John Stewart did, had a great evisceration of him for that event. Not, I think not knowing the monster that his campaign was going to become, but um, but that that one was almost all just a hired crowd. Of course, since then people have his message has resonated with people apparently because I don't think he's needs to hire crowds at this point, you know. But but you look at these other, you know, and and the whole company began with Adam Swart working for Jerry Brown's gubernatorial campaign in California and his. You know the the higher the campaign manager is asking them, hey, can you help us drum up crowds in these different cities? So a, a politician can't do an event and have nobody there. <laughs> but that said, like, how many people on a Tuesday at noon can get away from work in this small town to fill an auditorium? You know, so sometimes, so I, yeah, I mean, I'm sure some crowds are brought in. Um, more, what I think is interesting is I always look at the composition of people that they have standing behind the candidate. It's funny because if it doesn't really make sense for anyone to stand behind them because then you're not looking at them. You're not really in the crowd. But, you, you know, they're just p- part of the tableau that the the campaign staff has meticulously um, crafted to kind of show a vi- whether it's a diverse vision for what that candidate stands for, you know. Um, but Bernie Sanders did an event in my hometown, Ypsilanti, Michigan, and one of my friends has this really, really cute, like eight-year-old boy uh, with long, wavy hair, and um, 
And so he was chose. I noticed, you know, that night that he he had been chosen to. Um, when I was watching uh, all these clips of the of the event, I live in L.A., but watching these, these clips of the event, and I could see my friend's son like standing right behind. <laughs> He's just a cute, beaming, right. good-looking young boy, right? <laughs> like, and uh, along with a, a diverse range of other people, but um, uh, but I don't know. That's just uh, that that's that's political gamesmanship and. Um, that's that's always gonna be part of it. Well, the story was a great read. I think it's a, a fantastic piece, and and you know, a, a really interesting look at this dynamic from a lot of different angles. So, thanks for taking time out to talk with me about it today. Hey, thanks for making such an awesome podcast, Matt. All right, thanks a lot. Thanks so much again to Davy Rothbard for coming on the show. If you enjoyed this podcast, please do me a huge favor: rate and review it on iTunes. Those ratings and reviews help other people discover the podcast. Next week, we'll be talking with Jessica Ogilvie about her story, Rambling Woman, A Week on the Road with a Female Trucker. It's a great read, so check out the link on the show notes and on the website at nonfictionpodcast.com to read it. Until then, this is Matt Pusateri, and thanks for listening to the Nonfiction Podcast. Podcast.